Welcome to Pathway University. My name is Brian Freeman, and today we are going to start a new study looking at the book of Romans in the New Testament. We're going to take a look at the timeline, when this was written, what was the world like when this letter was written, who wrote it, who was it written to, and most importantly, what is the content of this letter. And so let's just start right off. Um, when was this written? Well, it might surprise you to know that uh, of all the content of the New Testament, a lot of it is anonymous, meaning the Gospels and some of the letters don't actually say in the content of those books and letters who wrote them. They, they're not kind of autographed. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yes, they have the names of the apostles written across the top, but the content of those books nowhere in there says, I am Matthew or Levi, I wrote this book. That's not true of Romans. And in fact, for the letter of, of Romans, we actually know a lot more about that letter than we know about a lot of the other content. We know who wrote it. We know roughly when it was written. We know who it was written to, uh, which is great. We, we even know the scribe who wrote it down. If you look at the end of Romans, you'll find that, that Paul's scribe even writes his name. So, so we know a lot about Romans. Uh, when was it written? Well, of course, it's a guess. It doesn't say the exact date, and of course it couldn't because, you know, the current calendar that we have was not in effect in the first century, but we think it was written during Paul's third missionary journey around the Mediterranean and probably in Corinth, uh, the, the city that Paul has two famous letters in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians, in which he wrote to them. This is probably written from Corinth his third visit to Corinth, as well as his third missionary journey around the Mediterranean, right before he's about to return back to Jerusalem to provide the donation that he has been raising around the Mediterranean to the Jerusalem church. We think it was delivered by a woman named Phoebe to the Roman church, again, sometime around 57 or 58 AD. So what's the Roman Empire look like at this time? Well, they're on their fourth emperor at this point. The Roman Empire is still relatively young. It's only been around for about 60, 70 years at this point, officially. The first emperor, of course, was Augustus. That was the emperor under which Jesus himself was born. And they've had some other emperors since then. There was uh, Tiberius, then a man named Claudius. And finally, Nero. And it's Nero who is reigning as emperor when Romans is written. But we don't think that the persecution that Nero persecuted against the Christians has begun yet. It's probably really important at this point to just take one step back and look at the Roman Empire itself and kind of what was going on there. Even by this point, the Roman Empire is really kind of divided in two. And if you're a student of history, you know that in the fourth century AD, the Roman Empire physically, uh, uh, politically splits into two completely separate sections, the East and the West. While those divisions are already present here in the first century, and, and they're largely drawn by language and cultural barriers. The eastern part of the Roman Empire is Greek. Many of the people speak Greek. It's what's the so-called lingua franca, the kind of common language spoken between peoples. Of course, people would speak a local dialect, uh, like in Jesus' case, Aramaic, or maybe even Hebrew. But the, the language of commerce and, and politics is Greek. The eastern part of the Roman Empire is much more civilized. There's a lot more cities. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more commerce. There's a lot more people. This is the area in which Paul has spent his entire life. All of his missionary journeys up to this point have been in the eastern part of the empire. 
going from city to city and evangelizing the good news. And so we'll find in the book of Romans that he intends, once he returns to Jerusalem, to go west. And he will go to Rome. At least that's his plan. He wants to go to Rome, and then he wants to go even further. He wants to go as far west as Spain. He even mentions that. And so it's Paul's desire to, to go west. And as we'll find out here in the, in the letter to the Romans, he wants to know the Romans. And so this letter, written to the Roman church, is a letter to introduce himself. He has not met most of these people. Most of them may have only heard about him through through the grapevine, through gossip, and that sort of thing. Some of them may have met him. Of course, Rome is a, a very cosmopolitan city at this point. Over a million people, most of them poor, many of them slaves. But it is absolutely a crossroads of civilization. As the capital of the Roman Empire, there would be people from all walks of life and all territories of Rome in that city. Well, who founded the Roman church? Well, you might say to yourself, well, if Paul's never been to Rome, how's there a church there? Well, it turns out that he wasn't the only one founding churches uh, in the region, and we're not exactly sure who founded the church in Rome or churches in Rome. Uh, It doesn't say. The New Testament does not say. Of course, there are many traditions. The Catholics, of course, will say that Peter founded the church in Rome. It is possible uh, that he did that. I'm not going to dispute it because I don't have any alternative evidence We just really don't know. It may have been Peter. It certainly was not Paul. And even Paul, you know, uh, through his explanation of Romans, will admit as such. What's going on in Rome during this period? Well, kind of the lead up to the letter of Paul to the Romans is an interesting one. It's important to remember there were many Jews in the Roman Empire during this period. They weren't all in Israel. In fact, there were many cities in which Jews were very prominent. Rome is one of them. Alexandria and Egypt is another. Tarsus, where... Paul is from is another, and of course, throughout Judea. Rome is a a melting pot. It had its own Jewish population. They lived in the so-called Jewish quarter, which is west of the Tiber River. The Jews were an interesting population within the empire. They kind of lived in a, a sort of truce, a sort of state of truce with the Romans at that period. You know, the Romans tended to assimilate the cultures and the people of the countries that they dominated. They would come in and they would say, okay, we're in charge. You have to pay us taxes. You have to worship. They didn't really say you had to worship our gods, at least not at this period, but they would distribute money with the emperor's image on it. And, and many times the emperor's image would be venerated as a god. And that, of course, rubbed the Jews the wrong way. They were absolutely not going to worship the image of the emperor as their god. And there was a lot of tension with the culture. Of course, the Orthodox Jews were not happy with the Hellenization or the Greekifying of of the Jewish culture. They didn't appreciate many of the Greek culture implications, like you know, exercising the nude, for instance. But the Romans maintained kind of a, a standoffish attitude towards the Jews because they found was, in fact, the Jews were very good. At managing themselves, and of course, uh, they had business, they had commerce, they were merchants. They were good for the empire, uh, no doubt. But the Romans learned kind of quickly not to push them too far because they would revolt, and there would be violent revolts. They, they, you know, they, they wouldn't be pushed around, but the Romans also realized that they were a benefit to the empire as well. So there was this kind of truce. While that all fell apart in the year 49 AD, and if you're a history student, What happens in 49? Well, all of a sudden, the Jewish population in Rome kind of melts down, and there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of fighting, infighting, open conflict, uh, and it gets to the the point where there's actually fighting in the streets, literally, between uh, the Jewish sect. Now, it's important to remember at this point, 
that the Romans and everyone considered Christianity to be a Jewish faith. There was no difference between a Christian and a Jew. They were both Jewish. It wasn't until many years later that the world started to see Christians as something different than the Jewish faith. And so at this point, people who gave their lives to Jesus Christ were, were seen as simply a sect of Judaism. So it's interesting because we know that in the year 49, things got so bad in Rome, you know, between various Jewish factions, Roman historian named Suetonius writes that there is uh, essentially a civil war happening because of a man named Crestus and the fact that some Jews believe he is the Messiah and some Jews reject that. Well, of course, if you hear that name Crestus, you immediately think of Christ, and that's exactly who that was. It turns out that the infighting was getting so bad between the the various uh, peoples over whether Jesus was in fact the Messiah or not that the emperor himself intervened, and he, he essentially kicked them out of Rome. Now, of course, many of them left. Jews and Christians left. Not all of them did, but it was it was pretty bad for some time. And in fact, they scattered throughout the empire, and we have uh, read that in Acts. In fact, we know about that. Well, that didn't last long. Claudius dies in the year 54 AD. The empire passes to Nero, who took control of the empire at a very young age. In fact, when we think Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church, Nero is still probably only a teenager, yet he is ruler of the most powerful empire in the world at that point. So this is a very interesting group of people that Paul is writing to. And you can imagine what the Roman church or churches would be composed of. You would have Jews, absolutely, Orthodox Jews who grew up their whole lives following the Mosaic laws. They, they followed circumcision if they were males and at some point gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Some of those believed still that you had to follow the laws of Moses. And this is one reason why Romans was written. They believed that even though Jesus is the Messiah, they still had to follow the laws of Moses and that it was works as well as belief in Jesus that that earned them salvation. Uh, There was also a group of what I would call proselytes, people who didn't grow up as a Jew, but started to follow the Jewish faith. They may go to synagogue. They may have prayed to Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God we believe is the God. But they didn't become circumcised, or they didn't completely follow all of the dietary laws, and yet they still believed in God, and you would call that person a proselyte. Then you had everyone else, and that was, that was essentially the Gentiles. These are people who did not grow up Jewish, they were never associated with the Jewish faith, they heard the gospel, they gave their lives to Jesus, and they became disciples of Jesus. Today we would call those people Christian. So you had all this mix of people <clears throat> who are living and working, talking about Jesus in Rome, and these are the people who Paul is writing to. And you can imagine with this mix of all these people and all these beliefs that they may not have all of the right answers. And in fact, that's true. And and it's important again to realize that at this point, there are no gospels. You know, you might be saying, Brian, look, what are you talking about? I open up my New Testament and it starts in Matthew. And you might assume wrongly that Matthew is the first chronological writing of the New Testament. That is not true. In fact, we have no evidence that any of the gospels or the book of Acts even were written until years later, years after the letter to the Romans was written. So you have to understand that at this point, there is very little information that people actually have about Jesus in the world. The only way that people know about Jesus at this point are really kind of three ways. 
either met Jesus and heard his gospel directly, or they heard from someone who saw Jesus directly. They heard from an eyewitness. And of course, the eyewitnesses at this point would be the apostles, you know, Jesus' disciples uh, on earth who are now, you know, preaching and teaching. Paul would, would be in that category. We'll talk about that in a minute. Or you would hear from a letter. And so there was no, inter- I don't even have to say that there was no internet, there was no TV at this period, but there also weren't a whole lot of people who could read and write either. And so information was really hard to come by when someone in the know who knew about Jesus would write a letter like Paul did to the Roman church. It's hard to overestimate how important that letter was to that church and to that community. That was literally the only hard, solid evidence that anyone had of the truth of Jesus Christ. And so when Phoebe shows up at the door of the Roman church and she's got this letter in her hand that's 16 chapters long, from a man claiming to have met Jesus himself, I will guarantee you that that was (laughs) the most important document in those people's life at that point. It was the only source of truth they had. And so this letter would be read aloud. Reading was almost always aloud at that point. You would listen to it, you would hear it, people would memorize the letter. The letter was literally memorized um, by many people. The few people who could read and write would, would, would copy it. That letter would be copied again and again and again, of course, because the original would wear out over time. We have no original documents of the New Testament. They were worn out within months, if not years. Um, And then those copies would be sent to other churches. And so the Roman church was not the last church to get this letter. Once that church had it, they they would copy it and pass that on to other churches. And that became their doctrine. That would become their Bible. And that's how we have the letter to the Romans 2,000 years later because people have copied it countless times over the centuries. Let's talk about who's writing it. Well, we'll go through the the first chapter today, uh, but it turns out it was written by a man who claims to have met Jesus himself. Paul, uh, originally born Saul, that's his Jewish name, claims that not only was he a Pharisee and a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was a very strict Jew, trained by a man who uh, was an important member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem named Gamaliel. This is a man who, in the early part of his career, was literally dragging Christians from their homes to have them stoned. This is a man who was the enemy of Jesus just a few years prior. And a man who truly believed that he was doing the right thing claims that on the road to Damascus, Syria, in which he was going to arrest more Christians, was struck off of his horse and had a blinding revelation of Jesus Christ himself. In that revelation, Saul or Paul claims that Jesus spoke to him and essentially told him, I am the Messiah. I am the one who has been predicted to come in the Old Testament or to Saul, the, you know, the Holy Scriptures. I am that person. And why are you persecuting me? And you know, essentially, I have a job for you to do. You need to tell the world who I really am and that I am who I say I am. And you need to stop persecuting Christians. And from that moment on, Saul or Paul becomes the most important evangelist in the history of the Christian church. And so Paul now is introducing himself to the Romans, who, again, probably don't know him personally, may have heard of this story of him dragging people from their homes, persecuting Christians. They may have also heard of all of the wondrous things that he's done as a Christian in uh, a lot of the other cities he's been to, like Corinth or Ephesus, uh, Berea, 
Iconia, so on and so forth. So the first part of Romans is essentially Paul introducing himself and establishing himself as an authority. And so let's go ahead and read chapter 1 of Romans, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with the power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all of the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness, how I constantly re- I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So right off the bat, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I am equal with the founders of the Christian faith, Peter, James, John, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, I am an apostle, but I didn't name myself an apostle, and the other apostles didn't call me an apostle. It was called by Jesus himself, and I think that's Paul establishing his street cred here, saying, I am an authority figure, uh, maybe one of the authority figures, and thus what I'm about to say is not only important, it's true, and you need to listen to it. I think it's important here, and, and as we go through these lessons, I am going to focus on the Greek. I am a student of Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. In fact, the letter to the Romans was written in Greek, and you know, I kind of make this comment. The Roman Empire was essentially divided into kind of two halves at this point. We have the eastern half of the empire, which is Greek. Uh, Greek is spoke widely. It is kind of the lingua franca, language, common language uh, of commerce and politics. Although people would have their local dialects or local languages like Aramaic or Hebrew or what have you, people who wanted to communicate with others throughout the empire would speak Greek. The eastern part of the empire was also much more populated. There was much more money in the east, and there was a lot of people. This is very different than the western part of the empire, which is much more sparsely populated. There's a lot less money, a lot more poverty. And in Rome itself and in the Italian peninsula, the language, the most most common language was Latin. 
And so it is interesting here that Paul is writing to the Romans, not in Latin, but in Greek. And I think that also kind of speaks to the audience that he is trying to reach here. But right off the bat, I do want to call attention to the very first uh, verse, which is Paul, <clears throat> a servant of Jesus Christ, a doulos is a slave, a male slave, it is often used in this period to talk about slaves is also talking about people who are servants of magistrates or of governors. It is a very strong word to denote the service of a person to another person. Now, <clears throat> it's not wrong, again, to, to say servant, but I just don't think that sums it up completely. And so Paul here is saying, I'm not just some guy that follows Jesus. Uh, he's all in. Paul is all in, and he says that right off the bat. <clears throat> he also starts right off by talking about the Holy Scriptures. And again, the letter to the Romans is filled with references to what we call the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament in the first century is just the Testament, <laughs> or covenant is another way to say that. But it's essentially the Holy Scriptures for the Jewish people. Romans is filled with quotes from what we call the Old Testament, and that's not an accident. And this gets at what Paul is trying to do in Romans. And Paul's goals here, the overarching goals here are kind of threefold. He's going to talk about how mankind has violated God's law. All of us, every single person on earth has violated the law of God. And that law is spelled out in the Old Testament scriptures. But it also points to a redemption or a redemptive future through a Messiah. And in the first century AD, all the rage and all the talk going on in the Jewish community was about the Messiah. Why? Because the Roman Empire was oppressively crushing the Jews. Uh, slowly at first and much, much more severe later, uh, they, were, they were an occupying force that occupied Jerusalem and the temple itself. <clears throat> they got to pick the high priest. So the Jews were talking a lot in this era about the Messiah, the, the person who they thought would come and free them from the Roman Empire, probably through military action. But, but that was all the talk. And so Paul is going to set this up by saying, I know you care about the Messiah. The Messiah is, in fact, talked about in the Old Testament. But here's the second part of what Paul's talking about. He's going to say, the Messiah has come. He has been here. He has arrived. And that person is Jesus Christ. The third part of Romans is really going to talk about what next. What is salvation? How do you achieve salvation? And through Jesus, what does that salvation future look like? How are people who are saved, you know, what does, what does that mean for them? How are they going to participate in that new kingdom? And that's what Romans is all about. Romans is definitely not a book of history in the sense of what the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles are. You know, when you, you pick up the book of Luke or, the, you know, book of John, that's really kind of a play-by-play -play history of the life of Jesus as well as his teachings. That's not what Romans is. Romans has very little of the life of Jesus. But what Romans has 16 chapters of is theology. And if, and if I were going to give Romans an alternative title, I would probably call it the Epistle of Salvation. Romans is about what is salvation and how do I achieve salvation? And Paul is going to be very specific in Romans. In fact, in many of his letters, Galatians or even Ephesians are some big ones there. Paul constantly hammers home the point, salvation for a Christian is about faith. 
It is not about following the laws of Moses or about your works. And so it's probably kind of a key here that because right off the bat, Paul starts talking about salvation and about that it's based on faith. Here in chap, uh, excuse me, in verse 17, he says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So this is going to be the focus of the 16 chapters of Romans. Well, let's go ahead and move on, and we're going to read the rest of chapter 1 here. Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought to not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So here we have the problem, the problem space. Paul is saying that mankind is evil. They have committed all sorts of immoral, sinful acts. And I don't think it's a mistake that Paul has picked these specific human vices as what he is going to hit the Romans with right off the bat. I think that tells me that those are probably the things that the Romans were struggling with at the time. As, you know, the person reading this letter to the congregation, as they read, I'm sure people were thinking as they hit on on this or that, they were thinking, oh crap, that's me. <laughs> oh, he just said that, yep, that's me, right? Uh, he didn't call out names, but he is very specific with the sins themselves. And he's making his case here, I think, that the people have chosen to reject God. And, and that's kind of our fall, right? That's kind of the downfall of man. The Old Testament spelled out what is sin? What does sin look like? What does violating the law look like? And then we've done it. Humanity has done it. And Paul is kind of laying his case here that uh, humanity has rejected God it, through their actions, through their rebelliousness. And not you know, an accident, 
what's written here in the first chapter of Romans is probably the things that the Roman church is struggling with. As we conclude today's lesson, I really want to focus on one final thought, and that is I really want to stay grounded in the simple truth of what salvation is for a Christian. And I actually look to John 3.16 as I stay rooted in that, and that is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I think it's really easy when you go through Romans to get caught up in the theology. And goodness gracious, there are people, theologians and historians and ministers and and very smart people who have probably spent most of their lives deconstructing Romans, trying to understand every word and every sentence. And that's that's great and that's interesting, but I think where we go wrong is when we get too caught up in the theology and we and we start to see things that aren't there. Um, maybe try and impute uh, or or guess or assume we think we know what Paul is saying to fill in the gaps. And I'm going to say we need to avoid that. I call it a black hole. You get caught up in this theological black hole and you start arguing and, and, and philosophizing and, and going down rabbit holes that probably aren't very productive. And I'm going to say we're going to stay rooted in truth. We're going to stay rooted in, in the concrete. What is Paul actually saying? <clears throat> Try and keep it as literal as we possibly can and try and avoid these theological um, rabbit holes that we might go down. So so as we go through Romans, again, I'm going to stay rooted in John 3.16. And kind of the analogy I usually give people is, you know, you don't really have to understand how your food nourishes you. You just have to eat it. And I think that's really true of the Bible. Uh, you know, yes, God is... A fantastic being who is obviously much smarter than us and he's infinitely wise and intelligent but I don't think he's given us the Holy Scriptures and the truth of the Holy Spirit to confuse us and to take us down rabbit holes and and to make it more complex than it needs to be and really I mean most of the Bible can be summed up into a very few you know number of sentences it's just a lot of repetition and I think I want to avoid thinking I need to assume or invent or, or go down rabbit holes, we're going to avoid that. We're going to try and just stay as literal as we can and understand what Paul is really saying, but we will get in depth and we will look at what he's saying. We're going to look a lot at the Greek. We're going to look a lot at the history of the church. We are going to look a lot at what he's saying. Um, and of course, a lot of that's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. So thank you for joining us, and I hope this has been enlightening, and uh, please tune in to us for next week's episode.